second installment of our 2021 podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, or EHFF. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. For this episode, we have two guests. To begin with, David Somek of the EHFF talks with Svetlina Filipova. Both David and Svetlina are active in all policies for a healthy Europe an intersectoral initiative that brings together a diverse group of organizations and individuals. Its objective is to put citizens' health and well-being at the heart of EU policymaking. Svetlina is chairing the initiative's Environment Group, of which I am also a member, and David is chairing the Working Group on Well-Being and Health. David and I then go on to interview Eloi Laurent, who is an economist based in Paris. Eloi talks about the strong links between justice, inequality, a healthy environment and human health. We'll go over to David now for the first interview. So I'm very pleased indeed to have with me today Svetlina Filipova, who's the head of the London office of the Institute for European Environmental Policy and deals with uh, particularly sustainability issues. The reason why I've asked Svetlina to talk with us today is that she and I are both involved in a coalition of organizations in Europe called All Policies for a Healthy Europe. And she and I both had working groups that were designed to develop policy papers for lobbying in particular areas. So I, for example, have chaired the working group on economic development and beyond GDP. And Svetlina is dealing with the environment working group. And actually, that's all I need to say. And I'll hand over to Svetlina to talk about what her group's been doing. Thank you very much, David. It's my pleasure to join you for this talk. Indeed, for the last year, I've been chairing the work of the Environmental Workgroup of All Policies for Healthy Europe. And it is a wonderful mix of stakeholders bringing together professionals in alliances relevant to environment, health and well-being. And I will mention only some of the members of the initiative, environmental work group, so that you can see who are the most prominent knowledge partners. This would include the EURO, the Water Supply Association, and then the European Cancer Patient Coalition, the Public Health Alliance, and the EuroConnect Health Alliance. MedTech Europe and many more together, as David rightly mentioned, the European Health Future Forum. It is indeed a wonderful um, set of stakeholders who, for the first time, are bringing really a diverse perspective to the discussion on mainstreaming and identifying interlinkages between health, environment and well-being. Indeed, the work of the um, work group has centered along putting people's well-being in the center of all EU policies making, bringing together the dots between a functioning ecosystem, climate change and citizens' health and well-being. We focused our work and identified our key policy recommendations along three main areas. And I'll talk about these areas in a second, but we have summarized them all in a work paper and in a brief version for the wider public, which can be consulted on the All Policies for Health Europe website. 
what I wanted to mention to you is the three areas that we focused our work on. The first one is the environment risk factors and disease prevention and the impact of air pollution on non-communicable diseases. The second one is sustainability of food production chains impact on healthy food, on the environment and well-being, and the third one, adverse effects of biodiversity loss on human health, preserving the environment. We have worked together in the environmental work group to bring in science-based evidence and define policy recommendations which can be put on the policy agenda of the uh, European Union institutions. We have closely collaborated with representatives of these institutions, trying to discuss and verify our recommendations and get them accepted and further build on. So we are not only lobbying, we are bringing in the policy context, the uh, scientific evidence and the joint view of various stakeholders on how the um, future environmental agenda of the European Union should shape, especially within the uh, zero pollution ambition of the Commission. You know that the European Commission is preparing now the action plan on water, air and soil. And we very much focused in providing input towards the integration of those aspects that I mentioned in the zero pollution action plan and in appropriately mainstreaming environment, health and well-being. Very interested to hear about the specific recommendations. Creating a healthy environment is key for addressing non communicable diseases and supports the objective of the European Beating Cancer Plan, in addition to the uh, Zero Pollution Action Plan. And therefore, we are thinking that the upcoming Zero Pollution Action Plan is a great opportunity to devise a strategic framework for both prevent and reduce the prevalence of non-communicable diseases by fostering a health-enabling environment. Moreover, the European recovery from COVID-19 crisis should promote social resilience from interconnected threats, including the impact of environmental pollution on human health. We trust that the Zero Pollution Action Plan should enable toxic-free environment in order to support both the economic recovery and the improvement of citizens' well-being. Within a sustainability uh, of food and production chain, I think the most important recommendations that I would wish to mention, the need to define and minimize the direct, indirect, immediate and long-term effect of unsafe use of fertilizer and pesticides in agriculture on human health and address how zero pollution ambition and the farm to fork strategy can support one or another goal. We are recommending to conduct further research on the impact of sustainable and poor nutrition on citizens' health and well-being in the EU, which is still quite a lot of room for research and development. And within biodiversity loss and human health aspect of our work, as highlighted by the COVID-19 crisis, damaged ecosystems make our society more vulnerable to extreme events and new diseases. There is a broad panorama of possibilities to use digital instruments following the zero pollution goals. And nature also sustains our mental and physical well-being and is key to our society's ability to cope with climate change, health threats and natural disasters. In this respect, we are recommending, among others, to put the intrinsic link between environment health and human health at the center of the implementation of the EU 2030 biodiversity strategy and ensure a sustainable approach to the post-COVID-19 recovery, putting protection of biodiversity at the center of EU economic recovery. 
we very much see the potential of uh, fostering the use of digital tools to enable high quality data collection and EU-wide research on biodiversity loss and adverse effects on human health. Indeed, the paper is providing a wider variety of recommendations and messages, and I would invite you to, to visit the website and consult it further. I agree. It's a very nicely turned out report as well, thanks to the All Policies for Health Europe comms team. But it's very clear from Svetlina your presentation, this is a very detailed report. And of course, you provide examples as well, I think, don't you, in the report of good practice and so on. I think for me, what is most interesting is having spent a number of years in the European policy arena, I think we know that we can bring together high quality people to give sensible advice. The problem is whether anyone's going to take the advice, isn't it? And the challenge then for your group and my group is uh, we've done some solid work, we think, and people have been quite positive about it, but it's how you take it forward, isn't it? And I wondered if you could say just one or two words about what the plan is for this coming year, about how you would help to get traction or engagement with these recommendations. Yes, right. Our Policies for Health initiative and specifically the Environmental Work Group have already established quite good communication and contacts with the key officials at European institutions. I'm talking not only about the European Commission, but also the European Parliament. Some of the uh, ambassadors of the initiative are actually MPs and have taken uh, key messages of our initiative up in the work of the Environment and Economic Work Group and uh, in the Mental Health Alliance, for instance, at the European Parliament. So our work is getting gaining more and more visibility. And what we uh, plan to continue is to ensure constant collaboration with our stakeholders in the institutions and continue promoting the ideas in the relevant fora, trying to lead uh, and support the agenda towards better mainstreaming of environment, health and well-being in every possible context. We have provided, for instance, comments and concrete suggestions to the consultations of the roadmap of the Zero Pollution Action Plan. And we also plan to get engaged into the dialogue for the development and implementation of eight environmental action program. We also engaged into discussions on implementation of the recovery plans, also trying to mainstream and make sure that there are clear indicators uh, and also possibly targets which can be included in order to monitor to what extent environment, health and well-being have been taken into account into diverse policies proposed and adopted nowadays within the implementation of the European Green Deal. I'm very grateful for your time in presenting this to us. The real test, and you make the point very clearly at the end, isn't it, is about impact. We can try hard, we're optimistic, otherwise <laughs> we wouldn't be doing it. But the acid test is to see whether we can measure whether we have been able to influence things at all. But we keep trying, don't we? <laughs> yes, to this end, we are really promoting non-GDP, non-economic indicators, which would give different perspective, but will be also quite indicative towards uh, the progress on achievement of the um, new targets. And we are very much hoping that such concrete targets will be put up front so that there is a measurable monitoring possible. 
After my interview with Svetolina, I want to explain how I came to learn of our next participant, Professor Elwell Laurent of Paris. Svetolina and I are both involved in All Policies for a Healthy Europe, and through that, I became involved, my organization, EHFF, with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, as indeed did FASTA. Now, one of the papers that we all suggested I might review was one written by Professor Laurent and a group of colleagues, and I learned from that of his recent book on the new environmental economics, and I thought it would be excellent if he would be willing to tell us something about the book, because it fits perfectly with the theme of this podcast. So, Eloa, over to you. Well, very happy to be with you, David. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be able to talk to listeners about this book. Well, first, a few words of introduction. I'm an ecological economist based in Paris, in Sciences Po, both in the OFCE, which is the Economic Research Center of Sciences Po and the School of Management and Innovation at Sciences Po. I also teach in the U.S., in Stanford University, well, both in Paris and Stanford. Also teach in Pont-Paris-Tech, which is another school in Paris. So I guess the interesting thing about me is that I was trained as a macroeconomist. My PhD is in macroeconomics, so very conventional approach to economics. And something like, you know, 15 years ago, I've completely shifted to ecological economics in order to better understand the fact that the macroeconomy is actually embedded in the biosphere. And so the things that you want to understand is not just, you know, the relation between households, the government, firms, labor, capital, fiscal policy, monetary policy, economic growth. All that, you know, I was trained to understand. And so I know that. The thing what I've discovered is, you know, what really matters, which is the fact that all of this is embedded and conditional on a greater reality, which is the biosphere. And so the book is really about that, recognizing that uh, macroeconomics, which I was trained to understand, is actually embedded in the biosphere. And this is ecological economics. And then comes another reality, which is how do you connect social realities to ecological challenges, because it's quite obvious when you try to understand what is really blocking this transition, which is just a rational transition, just not destroying our habitat is just a rational thing to do for a species. So the question is, what is preventing us from doing this? And one of the things that I've discovered is the fact that people think that environmental issues are sort of foreign affairs issues, even foreign planet issues. They don't understand how they relate to their everyday life and their values, their beliefs. And so the point of the book is try to revisit the notion of environmental economics through the lens of the nexus between sustainability and justice, trying to understand that all these environmental crises happen because of social problems, social dynamics, inequality being one of them. And then in return, they matter because they have an impact on social systems, on everyday life, inequality being one of those consequences. So it's really a process of trying to translate environmental crises into 
social problems and then environmental challenges into social solutions. And of course, I'm, I come from a country where you had this very clearly on display with the so-called yellow vest crisis in 2018, which is the fact that people are going to revolt against environmental policy, which is needed. Okay, France needs a carbon tax to curb its emissions. And the latest reports just weeks ago show very clearly that France is not on a path to meeting its climate obligations. So we need new instruments like carbon taxation to actually mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. But we are not going to be able to do this if we don't take into account social inequality. In other words, the transition has to be just. And if it's not just, it will just not happen. Okay, it's not an ecological transition, it's a social ecological transition. And my approach for the last 10 years has been to try to approach all of this through the social ecological lens. So you can do carbon taxation in France, it has to be just, and it was not just, and people revolted against it, and they were actually right in the fact that it was going to increase social inequality. So if you're going to pursue transition policies, which are going to increase social inequality, you will not be able to do transition. It's as simple as that. So hence the point of trying to connect every environmental crisis to social realities, and especially through this question of inequality. So this is the idea of sustainability and justice. This is really a nexus sustainability and justice. And the message of the book is quite optimistic, is that our societies are going to be more sustainable if they are more just, and they're going to be more just if they are more sustainable. So it makes sense to mitigate our environmental crises and our social crises together. Okay, it makes environmental sense to mitigate the inequality crisis, and it makes social sense to mitigate environmental crises. So the book is really about that. The vision is a profound one and very helpful. Funnily enough, Caroline and I were in a webinar yesterday about ecosystems. And we had presentations from two of the governments who are part of the well-being economy, the WIGO group, who are putting economic indicators into practice or attempting to that make more sense of the needs of society. And the idea, I think, behind that, I've heard Stuart Wallace, who started the Wheel Alliance, talking about the whole concept of healthy society and a healthy planet. But the question I, I really I'm interested in your view about is while what you say makes absolute sense and social justice in a way is part of the well-being economy approach how do you tackle that with the present economic system because it seems that makes it much more difficult to address social justice well of course I mean inequality right now is an obstacle a huge obstacle to environmental policy but mm. it doesn't mean that you cannot factor in those inequalities and actually reduce them. So we wrote a paper, you know, when this whole carbon taxation, because you have to understand France has gone from a crisis to another in the last three years. I mean, COVID is just the third one, you know, living in Paris, it's 2018, the city was burning, 2019, the city came to a halt because of strikes, huge strikes in transports and 2020, well, COVID. So 
it's just been one crisis after another. But you have to realize that when the 2018 crisis struck, I was actually in a PhD jury with a colleague of mine who was writing a PhD, very nice PhD, on the fact that there was a carbon taxation, which most French were not aware of, that existed, but it was really unjust in terms of inequality. And, and so I told her, well, this is a ticking bomb because when French are going to realize that there is carbon taxation, but it's not taking into account, for example, you know, income or location, they are going to be furious. And this is exactly what happened. So what we decided next is to try to have a little model where we show that you could have progressive social ecological taxation with two simple justice criteria, one being income and the other being location. Okay, so vertical inequality and then horizontal inequality. Uh, the fact that when you are poor, you are going to have energy weight on your budget more than if you are rich, but then also within each decile of the income distribution, some situations are going to be different. And this is horizontal inequality because, for example, I live in a city where I have easy access to collective transportation. I don't use a car. I've never owned a car. Okay, And so maybe someone has the same income than me, but is really dependent on the car. So that that's horizontal inequality. So you need the two criteria. But with those two very simple criteria, we end up having a model that actually redistributes money to more than 50% of the French population. All right. So it tells you a very simple thing, which is inequality is a basis for environmental policy. Okay, you can actually tax inequality because we have accumulated so much inequality in the last three decades that you can actually use that as a resource in a way to foster those transition policies. So yes, inequality is an obstacle and you need to take that, that into account. Otherwise, you're going to be completely unable to see what you are doing in terms of environmental policy. But you could also use this as a lever. And that's the good news. Okay, so if you ask me, what is more important today to finance ecological transition? For me, it's not economic growth. You know, if more economic growth is going just to make the problem so much harder. Chasing environmental transition with GDP as a compass is trying to reach something with your hand that you are kicking with your foot. You know, it's just making the thing much more complicated. But using social ecological progressive taxation is just a great way to have huge amount of revenues. We're talking tens of billions of euros in France. With that, actually lower inequality. So prove that you can lower inequality and advance environmental policy. And, you know, lower inequality in many ways, because when you get out of fossil fuels, you also curb air pollution. And maybe you have seen the studies on air pollution in Europe and France. It's basically twice as bad as what we thought. It's not yep. just a small difference. If you take into account finer particles, not even taking into account those micro particulates, but just finer ones, you know, 2.5, mm. you end up with, you know, figures that are just uh, twice the amount in terms of mortality and morbidity. Okay. And this is very important for COVID because we know that comorbidity is influenced by air pollution. And so it is estimated that probably a third of all death from COVID in Europe are actually related to air pollution. And this is environmental inequality. This is a new way to think about the environment, which is to think in terms of environmental justice and environmental inequality. So to make a long answer short, inequality is an obstacle if you don't recognize it, but inequality can become a lever if you actually see the social ecological reality.
Let me just raise one challenge, which is a lot of what you say rests on the wisdom or the common sense of governments, something they're not known to be specialists in. We know, for example, the government in the UK always talks about, with COVID, following the science, and then they do the exact opposite. They don't actually follow the science. Uh, so there's a real problem, it seems to me, in your argument. While it's absolutely right that is whether or not governments are willing to stand up to the pressure from multinationals and the big financial players. I just wonder what you think about that. Well, to stand up on their own, no, they've never did that in history. They stand up because they stand on the shoulders of people uh, who are become angry about the situation. The real question is, can you really look away after 2020? And I think that is just impossible. Mm. My opinion is that 2020 is the real start of the 21st century. You know, centuries don't start, as Eric Obsbaum uh, taught us, you know, at round years. They start when years that really matter for what is going to follow um, where you have an event, such as, for example, the declaration of the First World War, which started the 20th century when it was in 1914. And I think that 21st century really started in April, on April 2020, when you had 4 billion people locked down because we decided to you know, squander our habitat, which cost us the core of our humanity, which is our social links. And I think just in this relation, which is that when you destroy ecosystems and biodiversity, then you pay it with the highest price, which is not economic growth. What disappeared was social links, social cooperation, which is the most precious thing that humanity has invented and which is actually the source of its prosperity. Now, I think you cannot look away from this reality. I think that this is going to define the 21st century because we know that those crises are going to worsen. And we know that we have to change completely the economic system so that it is not self-destructive, which is the case today, and which ends up destroying what we consider to be the most precious thing. So do we have to answer directly your question? Do we have an example of a government not mine, not the French government, which has been a disaster from day one up until this day, not managing the pandemic. But do we have an example of one government doing things differently and actually gaining success from this new approach? And I think New Zealand, you were talking about the WeGo and the, all the, the wonderful work by we all. I mean, New Zealand, I think you have here an example of what is a well-being policy and the kind of success that you can expect from it. So New Zealand, you have, strangely, a country that is headed by a woman, okay? Uh, she's young. She comes from a very traditional political background, the Labour Party from New Zealand. And then she comes into power with a completely new message, which is, Economic growth up until now has been strong, but it's also been an illusion because it has not been linked to human well-being and social progress. And so I'm going to approach this differently. And then in 2019, New Zealand votes the first well-being budget of the history of developed countries. And why is it important? Because there you have a culture of well-being that's being held at the top of the country. And she actually faces the COVID crisis with this compass, which is health rather than GDP growth. And one year after that, the result is just spectacular. 
in terms of not only health, but also mental health, social cohesion, resilience, and also economic activity. Because the great lesson from COVID is that the countries that decided to follow 20th century economics following GDP ended up losing on all fronts. And France is just a poster child for this. And the countries that decided to put health, that is well-being first, actually won on all fronts. And this is just the spectacular illustration that not following GDP actually saves life, social spending, you know, and all sort of suffering. So I think it's the first time that you see that very clearly. And so, yes, there are governments that are actually able to lead on those questions and make a difference. And I think New Zealand is just a spectacular example. I agree entirely. (laughs) Indeed, we had someone from New Zealand in the webinar yesterday telling us exactly how they're planning to do this and putting it in practice. Look, I think you say something really important and helpful, which is the big point you made was about the ability of governments to change things if they have social solidarity that will back them up. It's the bottom-up power, isn't it? But equally, there's inspiring examples of leadership which combines the two, and this is how real social change perhaps can happen. In FASTA, that's the organization I work for, we have a great interest in what we call commons-based taxation. And I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of the commons, Eleanor. Yeah. Also, um, I've worked with Lynn, uh, actually. I, I've translated her noble lecture, you know, in French. Oh, great. She's just a great, yeah, she was just a great person. So I think it seems to me that you were talking about how inequality should be the basis for environmental policy. And it seems to me that there's a tie in with this notion of taxing the use of commonly held or commonly owned resources in a way where those who have the means to use them and more or less profit off everyone else have to compensate everybody else for that. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And are you familiar with the work by Jim Boyce? You know, his work on yeah. carbon dividends. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Jim is a is a friend. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. So I've actually translated this book in oh, French wow. and yes, oh. and written a, a foreword. The book was out in French just almost a year after the Yellow Vest, you know, happened. Mm-hmm. So it was so important. And so, yeah, Jim's book is all about that, you know, carbon yes. dividends. And Jim is also one of the person with Lynn Osram who really influenced me because he has this amazing idea that the reason why environmental degradations happen is because there are winners from those degradation. And the reason why they matter is because they are losers. And, you know, he wrote that in 1995. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I quote him in the introduction of the book and because he was so important in it. I'm very grateful for your time. And thank you for talking with us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Éloi Laurent, an ecological economist based in Paris. We also heard earlier from Svetlina Filipova, the chair of the Working Group on the Environment in All Policies for a Healthy Europe. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media and spread the word about our series, Bridging the Gaps. Please tune in also at the end of March for our next episode. Many thanks to Svetlina Filipova, and Eloi Laurent for participating in this podcast. And as usual, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Gadiyan Ella Berbua Agaslan. Thank you.